All right, let's be clear about something straight away. Let's just clear the air. You are a creep. Yep, that's the elephant in the room. You clicked on this because you are a creep. You like disgusting stuff. You watch too many true crime documentaries. But you know what? You're not alone, because me too. So I want you to sit back. I want you to put in your AirPods, your headphones. I want you to blast this in your car. And I want you to enjoy this podcast because it's just you and I. You don't have to be ashamed that you're fascinated by this stuff. I'm fascinated by this stuff too. I am constantly rediscovering how dark the human soul can get, how gray the lines of morality actually are, how murky the water is. Now, I want you, if you aren't already following, hit subscribe. And if you like today's episode, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. If I'm ever going to be able to move out of my mother's basement, I'm going to need all the help I can get. Our world is defined by the stories we tell. Much like ourselves, the reality we see and perceived is learnt through the tales we tell one another. Hansel and Gretel teaches us not to go in the woods. Red Riding Hood teaches us to be wary of strangers who would wish us harm. All these stories teach us valuable lessons about how we interact with the world around us, and by extension, they ingrain fears into us as small children. These fears we carry with us into adulthood. Before Jaws, I wasn't afraid of swimming, but through that medium, I learned what lurked in the dark waters of the ocean. I wasn't afraid of clowns until Stephen King's It introduced me to Pennywise, and I think every single one of you have similar experiences. For thousands of years, humans have been teaching one another through these storytelling mediums. We've been slowly, and surely accumulating these universally learnt tales and passing them on from generation to generation. This conversation, this podcast, is about that. My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. I was nine in October 2000. My world basically was the suburb that existed around my home. Every night we'd go out and play kick the can or midnight manhunt. And every night we went in for dinner when our parents called us and promptly right after we'd go back out and play hide and go seek or commando. No one worried about going missing. No one worried that your child would be snatched in the street. And I mean, this wasn't particularly long ago, but that world of naive freedom, it all came to a stop in October of 2000. I don't remember who answered the door, my mom or my dad. I don't remember what I was doing before those loud and panicked knocks. I don't remember if my sister was pissing me off that day or if I was watching TV at that particular moment. The only thing I remember is the look in his eyes. A man stood at the door holding flyers and I could vaguely hear him talking to my parents. His eyes, they were tired and bloodshot like he hadn't slept in a very long time. But what struck me was the slight crease between his eyebrows. It sounds ridiculous, but in that crease where his brow turned up just slightly in the middle, with those glassy bloodshot eyes, I could feel the weight around him. My parents moved aside and the stranger entered my home. He walked through my house. We went to my backyard and my dad opened the sliding door and he just strolled out into the grass. 
he went up to the chain link fence. And on the other side of that chain link fence was a forested area. It was almost the bottom of a ravine from a road that passed just above. He hopped the fence and my dad followed shortly after him. They both stared at the ground as they went around kicking leaves out of their way. Particularly gingerly. Like if a tea set was hidden in those leaves, they would not damage it. They would barely even hear the tink at the end of their toe. What I didn't know at that moment was that they were looking for 10-year-old Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas was just 10 years old when she went missing. Around the same time, another girl went missing, a 15-year-old Taiwanese exchange student named Yi Ching Chen in the nearby city of Surrey. She was found, and sadly, Heather was not. What happened to Heather Thomas is tragic and impacted not only me, but everyone I hung out with. What happened to her made Stranger Danger a standalone class in our local schools. It made our parents rein in their metaphorical leashes on us as children. And frankly, it made us lock our doors. It was a typical October evening. Wind blowing, leaves falling to the ground, but not yet decomposing. Some leaves were blazing oranges and reds and held onto the trees with a fierce determination. It was that typical October night that would shatter our youthful sense of immortality. On October 1st, 2000, police were called to Unit 26 in a townhouse complex in the sleepy suburb of Cloverdale, a border town of sorts between the farmland of Langley and the boisterous and troublesome city of Surrey. Heather was the daughter of Patrick and Jody Thomas. The two were estranged and lived apart. What police knew at the time was that a 10-year-old girl had gone missing. Search and rescue was already involved, along with all the neighbors trying to track down the whereabouts of Heather. She was reported missing at 5.30pm that same afternoon, but as the minutes and hours ticked by, everyone involved in the search became increasingly anxious. The Serious Crimes Unit of the Surrey Royal Canadian Mounted Police had been called to interview Heather's father, Patrick. Nothing had been found to indicate that he had anything to do with her sudden disappearance, but the first police to the scene reported his odd behavior. The complex Patrick lived in, where Heather lived part-time, was dimly lit. What the articles online don't tell you is just how shady and derelict this area of Cloverdale really is. Even now in 2020, it isn't uncommon to see uncomfortably young children running around unsupervised. The houses are worn down, and there are several halfway houses within a few blocks of each other. The complex they lived in was comprised of wooden townhomes that even back in 2000 had the unkept green tinge of algae and mold underneath the eaves and at the bottom edges of the window and door frames where the incessant rain ran down the sides of these townhouses. There's roughly 50 of these townhouses in this particular complex, mostly filled with single parents and young couples starting families. It's a blue-collar neighborhood. And frankly, it's poverty-stricken. October 1st that year was also a Sunday. Flea markets are on Sundays. And one of the largest flea markets in the greater Vancouver area is the Cloverdale Flea Market, which took place along the street from where Patrick and Heather live. Thousands of people from roughly a 100-kilometer radius come on Sundays. I don't need to spell this out for you. Thousands of people attending a flea market meant thousands of potential witnesses or perpetrators who had no way of being accounted for. This was 2000. There was no square. You couldn't just tap your credit card. There were no smartphones. The officers from the Serious Crimes Unit quickly noted what the previous police had meant by unusual behavior. 
Patrick seemed unnaturally calm. The officers asked to do a search of the house. Patrick agreed, quietly, and like their search earlier, they found nothing. His car had been searched and had come up clean. And then officers asked Patrick to come to the police station for a formal interview and statement. Once again, he calmly and quietly agreed, and at a quarter to one, roughly seven hours after Heather's disappearance, Patrick was interviewed. In brief, his story was this. Patrick had been working on some carpentry in his residence. The two kids, Heather and her eight-year-old brother, Chris, had asked around 4.30 to go out and play around the complex while they waited to go to their mother's. He said yes, but told them they had to be back by 5.30 so that he could keep to the prescribed schedule. Around 5, Chris came back into the house, but without Heather. And Pat told him to go get his sister so that they could get ready to leave. Chris went out. He couldn't find Heather and came back a few minutes later saying exactly that. Showing the usual parent frustration, Pat packed up and went into the complex. He began looking, talking to the various kids and parents as to whether they had seen Heather. It was learned after a short time from some of those parents that she was last seen riding a two-wheeled bike that she had borrowed from one of the other children. A few minutes later, the borrowed bike was found, but no sign of Heather. According to one witness, the bike tire was still spinning when they found it near the front of the complex in the parking stall on its side. The interview of Heather's father concluded around 2 a.m., leaving police with more questions than answers. Patrick was calm, completely and undeniably calm. His daughter was missing, presumably taken. He had no idea where she was, and he sat there calmly and quietly answering the probing questions, not once addressing the fact that he knew, and police knew, that they were making insinuations as to his possible involvement in the disappearance of his daughter. Patrick was dropped off at the Cloverdale Fairgrounds to join the search and rescue group, still looking for Heather. The timeline both laid out by the original officers, the neighbors, Patrick, and the interview gave him no time to be involved in the disappearance of his daughter. From the moment she went missing, to the police dropping him off after the interview, his car had not moved. He could not have transported her anywhere. Police feared that if they turned their attention away from Heather, it could very well be a decision they'd regret for the rest of their lives. But the circumstantial evidence just didn't leave him any time to commit the crime. The clock was ticking. If it wasn't a family member, who had taken Heather? The police were in their own personal nightmare. There are only a few motives for abducting a 10-year-old girl, and if Heather was taken by a stranger, then the chance she was still alive was slim to none already. Heather had just disappeared. As the autumn wind blew leaves from their roosts, as children prepared their Halloween costumes or worked on their homework, or were playing hide-and-seek, Heather had quietly and mysteriously vanished, surrounded by thousands of potential witnesses, and not a single one of them knew where she was. The search party, Heather's friends, family, neighbors, and police searched everywhere they could possibly think a child or her body could be hidden. Ditches, construction yards, picking through garbage and dumpsters, they searched everywhere, but there was still no Heather Thomas. While everyone searched and with nothing coming up, police now started looking at 176th Street that was nearby. Now, that alone means nothing. It means absolutely nothing to you. It's just a street. I'll add that it's a busy street, but how does that relate to a missing girl? 
Well, while police search for Heather, including the underbrush and ditches along the stretches of 176th Street, they couldn't help but fear where the road led. Just 10 minutes away lay the U.S. border. If someone had managed to grab Heather and drive her 10 minutes south, and then managed to get across that border, she would never be found. And while hundreds of people were searching for her, some members of the community were also unwilling to cooperate. They didn't want to incriminate their friends, and police couldn't search any of the 50 units in the complex unless people voluntarily let them in their homes. There just was not any evidentiary grounds to seek warrants. They had searched Pat's home, but that was one of 50. There were 49 townhouses riddled with places to hide a small 10-year-old girl. Over the next three days of the search, over 10 search and rescue teams and police agencies began to get involved in the search for Heather. They came from Vancouver, Washington State, Squamish, North Vancouver, Coquitlam, Burnaby. This included off-duty officers and firemen, and with 1,200 volunteers from the community by day three, and an even larger number turned away, this was shaping up to be one of the largest searches in RCMP history. And that is when the media grabbed the story. She was on the evening news. She was the front page of newspapers. There were flyers being handed out to thousands of homes, mine being one of them. Not only was Canadian news running the story, but there was now international interest from the US and Europe, something that rarely happens. This was a pretty 10-year-old girl, and her simple school photo was absolutely everywhere. She was anyone's daughter. It became personal to those involved. It became personal to the entire community. But as day three came and went, the newscasters started using the words find and hope less and less. They rehashed the same details over and over. They were lurking around every corner. They walked through the complex and stood on the sidewalks and streets, looking to get anyone on camera who was willing to say just how desperate the search was becoming. As six o'clock rolled around and families were eating their dinners and volunteers were still searching, the news would lead with the story of Heather Thomas. There was still no evidence of the young girl, the only piece of evidence being the bicycle she had borrowed. The wheel still spinning when someone first noticed it on its side in a parking stall. Missing Heather by mere seconds before she seemingly vanished. After three days of intense and extensive searching, the RCMP called it off. This wasn't because hope was lost. Instead, RCMP wanted the neighborhood scrutiny to die down. If this was a crime of opportunity, then maybe the person who took Heather was hiding her in a place they weren't comfortable with and were waiting for all the people to leave before they moved her. But a few days passed. Families sat and ate their dinners, and every night on the 6 o'clock news was the Heather Thomas story. Still no evidence. Still no sign of the girl who seemingly vanished. Another search day was organized. Volunteers showed up again. Search and rescue teams organized the effort with the RCMP, and they searched again. But again, they found nothing. Hundreds of items had been seized, checked, discarded as not belonging or related to Heather. Hundreds of people from the community went home each night a little more discouraged with their search efforts. It wasn't for lack of trying, though, or for the lack of attention as every post or hydro pole in Surrey had stapled to it a picture of the missing Heather. Police began to investigate and put surveillance teams on neighborhood personalities like 
pedophile Darcy. This pedophile Darcy, of course, drove a dirty white van and had been caught masturbating on a child's bed. He also had an extensive history of sexual assault, but eventually pedophile Darcy and the others were eliminated from the suspect list. Every sex offender in the area was interviewed. Then police brought in their search to every sex offender in Surrey. And in 2000, there were over 500, that's 500 sexual predators all of which could be persons of interest. They would describe how it couldn't be them involved as their method was different in terms of the suffering and police had to sit through this. They described how they would inflict their need for sexual satisfaction on these children. Some described why she would be alive to be kept as a sexual plaything. Any killing of her, obviously, would have to be just to get rid of the evidence and a pure waste in their words. Any killing of her, would be a signal that things had gone wrong. Police even made note of a local crack dealer who they had interviewed, who went so far as to explain that no normal criminal likes sex offenders, whether in jail or on the street, and even offered his help in trying to locate the girl. Then America's Most Wanted called wanting to profile the case. That in turn generated two tips that proved of no value. Europe and parts of North America were all now paying attention. As people continued to search for young Heather Thomas, nights got colder. Trees began to take on the shape of long gnarled fingers. Frost now covered everything as kids got out of their beds to go to school in the mornings. Weeks had now passed, no sign of Heather, no evidence. It was almost as if she had never existed, except we had the evidence she had. Her school photo, the photo that had been seen across the world. It was in our living rooms at night, on our front steps in the morning. It was in the US, in Europe, it was everywhere. Everyone knew what she looked like and none of us had ever met her. We all knew Heather, but she never met any of us and we'd never meet her. It felt like she was a classmate. It felt like she was a family friend. I remember wondering what she sounded like. I remember daydreaming that they had found her and she moved into my neighborhood and we were now friends. That she went to school with us and made fun of me after I asked a stupid question in class. I've never been religious, but... To me, in my own childlike way, this was as honest of a prayer as I've ever been able to muster. I wanted to find her. Everyone wanted to find her. Then it happened. On day 22, they found Heather Thomas. Follow and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on part two to hear the conclusion to Heather's story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume podcasts. Remember, I live in my mother's basement. I am the OG creep. If I'm ever going to move out, I need your help. I need all the other creeps in the world to leave a five-star review. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at at toldbycole, where I post daily true crime content, or Tales by Cole, which will eventually be the home of everything this podcast becomes. And don't forget to lock the door.